Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who help us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. This conversation is with artist Palmer Ham, a multimedia artist with a high goth aesthetic. Ham runs the underground club night Wraith in London, which in many ways is the backbone to the subcultural movement taking place in London, which channels post-human looks through fashion, makeup, prosthetics and technology. But Wraith is more than just about clubbing and has become an important community of creatives, which is something that we talk about here. Ham has also infiltrated the high fashion scene, modelling for Burberry's spring-summer 2023 campaign and, more recently, for Windowson's collection, where Ham walked the runway in gigantic, stomping, transhuman-looking boots. Here, we talk about sex and bodies, inclusivity, being bullied at school, Ham's art-making techniques, their self-assurance, their sex and fetish brand Nullo, and Ham draining their own blood to use in a performance. For those that might not know, Palmer Ham has legally changed their name, and explained in an interview with Dazed and Confused. The name is a comment on the commodification of my identity, which has been processed and auctioned off like meat. Ham is a key player in the post-human art movement that I am researching and documenting. Before recording this episode, we had already done a previous interview for my research project, which had lasted a couple of hours. So I want to thank Ham especially for dedicating almost an entire afternoon to my relentless questioning. It was absolutely amazing to have more insight into their art and overall mission it's the worst question ever like i hate it it's like a dinner party question so what do you do someone with like such a broad spectrum it's a nightmare when there's a broad spectrum you mean like your job yeah like how do you define it even specifically about my practice but like it's so broad mm. from fashion installation performance it, it's a bit of everything i don't want to be tied down to like you know everyone else is like oh i'm a painter or whatever i'm an artist let me go well it goes back to what we were saying about language and categories and binaries mm. in terms of it being like you don't want to be restricted to mm-hmm. one particular thing as in the same as with art you don't want to define yourself in mm-hmm. that way no i feel like what you're doing with your art but also with and your community is so groundbreaking and subversive and gaining huge momentum in popular culture, I would say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's definitely riding a momentum and there's definitely, if there's like an increase in attendance and it's kind of in its own way growing and expanding following whatever kind of like, when I say trend, but like it's responding to what's happening out there. Like I'm not trying to like set out with some kind of master plan of what people need to come to. It's like, yeah, it's a response response to the situation and the blossoming subculture of artists that have just appeared. And partly as well, Wraith is a meeting point, isn't it, for everyone? Like it's a place for people to network and come together and support each other. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. There's like a real sense of community Mm -hmm. online. It's obvious, Mm -hmm. but it's really clear that Wraith is this glue in a sense of like everyone goes and meets up there and has that physical, really important human to human interaction, parties, celebrates. I think that's really key. And it's kind of key to the heart of Wraith in a way. Yeah, I think it. I mean, you mentioned like the online world 
world. I think maybe there was a point where maybe we became too self-reliant on social media to connect us. I'm thinking kind of the 2010s when Instagram and Facebook kind of really took off. And I think maybe a lot of us started to connect and integrate in that realm, which was really exciting because suddenly your tribe is global and I'm connected with people in Australia, Mexico City, China, which has never really happened before. These have always been very like isolated silos. But then for whatever reason, I think social media kind of turned on us quite a lot and started to censor us and started to like really clamp down on the connectivity of us. And it was now kind of difficult to go beyond these micro filter bubbles that we all exist in, which is just where you can only see other people that are like you and you can't see beyond it. With the pandemic as well, it was also more separation. And I feel like now for the most part over that, there's this like huge rush to integrate and be together and have a community and a sense of like place where maybe in the rest of society, we feel maybe a little bit like outcasted or maybe not quite belonging. So it's quite rewarding to have a kind of tribe that you closely relate to and can share your work with each other. Because that's what's so like essential to Rafe is work. You know, it is a club night, but people are there to to meet people to meet to meet people and enjoy company but also to experiment and share the act of other people's creations and it's very broad it's like it is performance it is live music but there's also like we've done a zine so it's also poetry short stories philosophy this is a platform in order to share it with other like-minded people in the community we should probably give a bit of a definition of wraith in terms of it is a club night and that's kind of the name of the club night Mm -hmm. which moves around in different venues but it's also it's also kind of symbolic of the community itself and like you say you have you know, or a sign mm-hmm. I never know the right way of saying that or a book as you actually call it within it itself you refer to it as a book yeah I think it's because it started off as a sign but it was just one of those things that kind of snowballed into such a big thing I don't think you can call it a sign anymore it's literally a book because it is an anthology there are so many like components and texts and contributors in it I think almost calling it a sign is kind of like a disservice right so it's become its own thing but it wasn't the intention when we set out to do it. I love it. One thing I wasn't really expecting, I wasn't expecting there's a manifesto in the front mm-hmm. of, of the book, let's call it a book, and also that, that it's divided up into chapters of highly academic themes. Mm-hmm. You draw from sort of intellectual academic areas, but you also draw from media, social media, popular culture, goth, mm-hmm. subculture, counterculture, and it spans across all of these different areas. And it's also beautiful to actually look through, and mm-hmm. the imagery is amazing. I would say, same as your the zine that you were in called Slay, to sin what's the name of your friend that produced that less than human less than human fantastic piece of work as part of research for this podcast i took both the (laughs) book wraith and (laughs) the zine slaves into to to a cafe thinking i'll just you know sit in the cafe and do (laughs) do some research forgetting that there's quite a lot of nudity in it obviously slaves to sin is not something that you can take to a cafe on a monday morning (laughs) well i would (laughs) well yeah you should but can you give us a little bit of a description of slaves to sin or what the ethos is i mean that's a whole series but this first edition was one that kind of centered around me and my identity and I guess it was quite an open invitation to what it could be but I wanted to kind of make it an explanation or like an expose of my sexual identity I guess and how broad that is when you think of me as agender or non-binary and I think a lot of the time discourse around that forgets about the kind of sexual implications that can then have in that you know how do you have sex 
or how would you think about sex with a non-gendered person? Because the act of sex and the act around fetish has such a binary connotation to it. Because a lot of us have always grown up with this understanding that sex is between male or female, but then even in like queer relationships, there's still like a submissive and there's always this like opposite in relationships and opposites attract kind of thing. But when you're a gender and you're not any one side, where is that opposite attracts kind of element? How does that feed into it? And I think these images were a way to kind of like gender fuck with what other people perceive as gender and sex. And I think in all these different looks and styling and positioning, it was deliberately like really ambiguous and showed like softness and harshness and aggression and just plain beauty in all these different ways. I guess it's to show people a possible way of life. I mean, it's my way of life, but I kind of wanted to put that across and make sure that other people could kind of see it and be inspired by it. Was it a kind of a place for you to experiment with your own sense of self and your own body and expression, non-gender or agender? No. <laughs> no, I was like, I guess I'm already quite self-assured in who and what I am. Sure, it was fun to play around with and experiment, but I think I've already bypassed it. Like I'm already like totally, You're already there. I'm totally there and fine with my gender and sexuality or whatever that is. So I've, it was just a place to play? Yeah, it was for me it was playful. You know, I enjoy the fluidity of going back into gender or playing around with it or toying. Like it was just a pleasurable exercise and I just wanted to kind of look kind of cute. You do look cute. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was fun to experiment. I didn't personally like learn from it because I kind of already knew what I'm about. Mm -hmm. What you were just saying about your gender and sexual identity and this idea of wanting to move past it in a way. You feel like it's not even something that should necessarily be focused on mm -hmm. and it's something that you play with really visually. You've previously said in another interview that you are agender. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of define that for us, even though that's obviously like counterproductive of what you're trying to do? But for those of us that don't know what that means. Yeah, I feel like I'm this entity where the rest of society is trying to place these concepts, sex, gender and sexuality onto me. And it's often the case where I feel like I'm made to kind of prove to other people what being a gender is. And I'm like, actually, no, you need to prove to me like why I should follow gender. That's something you're prescribed to. I'm not prescribed to it. But yet, why am I the one that has to be out there and say, I'm different? I think you're all the different people and you need to explain to me why that's relevant because I don't see what that has to do with the things I'm doing. Like, I am wearing the things I want to wear and emotionally expressing the things I want to be. I'm sleeping and having relationships and fucking with the people I want. Like, why does that have to be defined in these narrow terms and concepts? Why are certain actions that I do seen as masculine or feminine? That, to me, is bizarre and I feel like they should be the ones that are trying to prove it to me, not vice versa. So irrelevant to the way I want to conduct my life and I'm so beyond it. And anti it probably a bit as well. Yeah, to a degree. Like I just, I'm kind of fed up of it. I would rather be at a place where I don't need to think about it or I can just live my life and not be asked what gender I am or what pronouns I use or anything. I just want to exist and do my thing. It's almost like, like a drag for me. Mm -hmm. In a sense, it's kind of tied up with language, isn't it? And like the power of language. Mm -hmm. And that's something we kind of can't step away from, mm -hmm. language itself. But I, I notice as well that you do use language in a way which is a part of your art. Mm. You've got a brand Nullo, which is like sex toys and sort of fetish wear. And the word Nullo comes from the idea of nullification mm -hmm. or the process of nullification, which is the removal of genitalia. Mm -hmm. Is it external genitalia as well as internal sex yeah, organs? It, it could be anything. It's just the removal. Yeah. Which is obviously an extreme act of body modification, mm -hmm. which is to do with a rejection of gender. 
mm-hmm. and is technically, I think it's like illegal in lots of countries. Yeah, it is. It's or it's illegal, illegal everywhere, yeah. yeah. But it is an act that it does get performed. These surgeries do get performed. Mm-hmm. And drawing on that word, nullification, to create your brand nullo, that's a really interesting play on words. And I think as much as language can be restricting, it can also be quite liberating yeah. if you play with it. It is. How did you come to that brand name? I guess on this concept of language being useful and like, the, the, however much I resist definitions, they can also be incredibly useful. So before we get to nullo, for me, like agender and non-binary, I remember a time before those words were commonplace and I grew up not really sure my direction as far as my gender goes. And I was trying to kind of fit myself into quite narrow definitions of like male and female, trans man, trans woman, and like none of, none of those categories were like suitable, but I flirted with them and it, it nothing really fit. And it wasn't until I discovered, along with many other people at the time, probably like five years ago, the term non-binary and been like, actually, there's kind of this third-ish option or this other thing that you can actually be. And with that, I moved into that category. But I also grew into that category in the sense that once I could understand myself or understand how this then relates to the rest of society, I started to evolve and change according to that. So language has been really essential to my own metamorphosis of my personality and character and everything. And without that, I wouldn't have been able to understand and really work out these parts of my identity. And then I guess it was the same with Nullo to a degree as well. That exploration, I guess it's almost like the next step is like the exploration of how to self-create the body or how to go beyond the body as what I've known it growing up. Nullo was all about experimentation. It was stripping back absolutely everything we know about gender and sexuality and starting from scratch and going in these alien transhuman experiments based on like science fiction and desire and that kind of stuff. When you just mentioned their desire, how much of a role does sex play within like wraith and within the community itself? Because that's one way of pushing the boundaries of mm-hmm. social norms. And it can also be like a big fuck you to the system. And obviously within like norm clubs, that's how people meet or date or have sex and, and mm-hmm. all of that. But because you showcased Nullo at Wraith and because there's a queer community there which is celebrating their queerness, do you feel like sex and desire is quite central to Wraith itself? And the ethos of Wraith. Yes, so I find Wraith is not in its core being that it is a queer club, but it is mostly queers that go. And I think queers themselves have been pushing in so many different directions that really like changes what we or culture more broadly sees as human. And by that, I mean the way that a human relates to other people in society, whether that's friends, partners, family, it really tugs at the whole fantasy that we've been brought up with. So I think that in itself is like a a resistance to the hegemony of society itself. It is a powerful rejection of it and particularly thinking of Nullo Mm -hmm. being out there in terms of it being it's almost comedic it's almost a parody isn't Mm -hmm. it of kind of let's make this fetish wear alien and futuristic you know you've got some outfits which are covered in tentacles Mm -hmm. which were all modelled in the actual Wraith Club itself on Mm -hmm. real models who walked out into the club it was a show you put on there and there was some that were kind of playful in the sense that there was like a 
tentacle penis that was inside a cage. So mm. it was like, it was a piss take in the sense of it. Obviously, this isn't functional because it's in a cage, mm. but it's kind of highlighting these phallic objects and these tentacle-like objects, which are linked to sex, but also linked to this futuristic sci-fi exploratory world. Mm-hmm. But also there are functional sex toys in there as well, which I yeah. feel like is quite important to Nullo itself because it is a sex toy brand that has, you know, fetish wear as well as functional sex objects. You've got like a taxidermy deer hoof, which is functional, a functional strap on mm-hmm. and other items which are functional sex items. Um, and how do you do in terms of Nullo and sales? Do you have like quite a lot of sales? No, we've made no sales. Oh, <laughs> They're no. Not, not actually for sale either. I wouldn't want to sell them. Oh. Like these things are on hold for museum in like 20 years time when people realize our greatness which is always way too late interestingly the i mean the tentacle in the cage that was kind of a play on chastity cages i guess there isn't comedic because it's reimagining the phallus as a tentacle but then still applying the fetish of chastity which is denial of its use so i, I guess yeah it was quite light-hearted but like it was based on a fetish in itself mm-hmm. i guess the motivation to create a lot of these pieces came from the experimentation with the way we self-create our body online and I think the press has called it alien aesthetics before but it's to do with the way called it alien aesthetics alien aesthetics which I'm not that keen on the name but it's the name that's stuck it's the way it's the way that many of us a few years ago were using apps like Facetune to edit our bodies but not in a way that made us like beautiful and pouty but in a way that manipulated the body to be extreme or or like to have extra body parts or to be part animal or, or mythic. And I guess what Nolo was doing was kind of looking at alien aesthetics or these manipulations and then bringing that into real time. But then it went one step further and was like, this isn't just a visual aesthetic. This is like a functional way of life. This is a possibility, whether it's now or in the future, that we need to reimagine the way we appropriate sex and gender in like a transhuman way. Because because things are going to continue to develop and things are going to continue to change. So why not something as important and as primal and as something that connects us all, which is sex? I see the connection now mm-hmm. much more clearly. Yeah. Obviously, sex has been a big part of counterculture and subculture throughout history anyway. Mm-hmm. Counterculture is a place for people who've been excluded or been alienated from society in some way. And it's a place to connect with people and feel loved and show mm-hmm. love and show desire and, and experience all of that. But now I really see the connection in terms of it being this sort of futuristic endeavor in terms of how can we reimagine sex and bodies mm-hmm. in a way that is more equal and ungendered yeah and removing gender from the body so what we understand as humans as our identity that's something that we know is going to change and adapt the very obvious thing would be with cybernetics and implants and cryogenic anything kind of like a bit sci-fi that's what i think a lot of people see as transhuman or the next step you know us integrating with machines and technology it could also be this bloody metaverse or augmented reality. It makes us reflect on, on what we're going to be. But I think we've already been doing that because of social media and the best version of ourselves that we put up there. Like mm. We're already at the point of being transhuman. We're already at the point of having to reestablish what the individual is. And part of that is definitely sex. We're all products of that act. And it's all something that, unless you're like ashamed, <laughs> like it's all something that we enjoy and take pleasure in. 
whether you deny that or not. So it, it's definitely something that the project Nullo really wanted to like make so centerfold and really kind of like play around with as a possibility. And whether that is some cyberpunk implants in the future with blades that come out your breasts, or if it's whatever digital avatar you have in the metaverse, these are going to reestablish what it is. Why not start now? Mm. And it's true what you say there about the fact that we're already doing it. Essentially, we're already walking around with phones in our pockets that following us GPS the whole time. It's almost like they've outsmarted us as well. Instead of having a chip inserted into our flesh, they don't need us to do that because mm -hmm. we're so glued to our phones yep. and addicted to our phones. The way that we communicate through social media, what happened with the pandemic, everything went online. People have surgery quite often, body modifications. Everything that we do in terms of communication and work is now dependent on the internet and technology. Mm -hmm. So we're living and breathing it. It's already penetrated us. No, completely. And the chip might not be inserted in us, but it's in the palm of our hand or in our pocket. That we're inseparable from. When we, we cannot leave it alone. <laughs> it really doesn't matter if it's in your body or not. Most of us can't be without their phone. Mm. I know I can't be. It's like an extension of my brain. Like there are so many things that I don't remember, but I automatically go to my phone to like Google, which goes to like the hive mind of the world. Or if I go and check my notes or my emails, it's already part of my brain but then also with the way we connect with each other social media has really changed the fabric of society and relationships and even the fact it's got a camera i think really has transformed the way that a lot of us see the world a lot of things are more like experience based based on the fact that people want to take pictures and i guess sightseeing things like this is something you should enjoy mm. people are looking for like this thing that is different yeah it's up to the game in many ways everything yeah. has to have some kind of integration of technology. Mm -hmm. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes and take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. When you were talking about on Instagram, we portray ourselves as our higher selves and use it in a way that is about identity expression and performativity and playfulness. And it is also a way to connect and people can see you and people who maybe are feeling scared or trapped or like unsure of their own identity. Mm -hmm. Whether you like it or not, you kind of become a role model when you're on social media. And when you have that platform, you've got a lot of followers. And do you feel comfortable with being the idea of a role model? I actually am. And I think that's because I feel like a group up without role models. Obviously, there are maybe several people, musicians and artists that I can kind of point to that inspired me a bit, but no one really, I feel like, got down to the nitty gritty bit about identity and particularly about sexuality and gender. Myself growing up, there wasn't really anyone to look to and be like, oh, maybe this is what it could be. And I do know there are a lot of people that do message me and do meet me and say that, like, I've been so important to their own growth and their own realization of who and what they are and this is people of all ages as well it goes without saying like 13 14 15 year olds but also like 40 56 year olds are also saying the same thing which is quite beautiful wow what and they just come up to you on the street yeah there's even regular friends and they've just turned around and been like by the way knowing you has really changed my outlook and what i see myself that's accomplishing so nice. i think that's so wonderful that people reach out to you and say that stuff to you does it make you feel uncomfortable ever that you're sometimes maybe put on a pedestal <laughs> 
It can, and there is a degree of, I don't want to work the life as a role model. Like, I've kind of fallen into it. And I don't want to be, like, held on this pedestal as, like, this person that has to be perfect. I'm really not, and I do have flaws, like everyone else. And I think that's the problem when people look up to you, is, like, suddenly you have to, like, lead the perfect life. And I don't want that, and I didn't ask for that. But at least in the topics that we're covering today, I can say I lead a very positive life. And I do want to share that and say this is good and people see me flourishing and that encourages them to also perhaps be brave enough to also follow suit or do something similar or open up in their own lives. I feel like it's really important you just said that in a sense that I think stereotypically goth and punk and particular countercultures but particularly goth I would Mm -hmm. say have I mean they still rile up religious people people Mm -hmm. who are like super religious seem to think that it's like satanic and from the devil and I've seen some comments on your Instagram where people are literally losing their shit yeah and they can't they completely freak out and i think that people connect it with a darkness or like too much hedonism or lack of direction or Mm -hmm. trauma Mm -hmm. so hearing you say that i mean it doesn't surprise me because it's quite obvious that you're living a very fruitful and happy Mm -hmm. life working at the serpentine Mm -hmm. gallery as a producer in central london Mm -hmm. in hyde park you're running wraith which is this incredible artistic community nightclub events performance art every kind of art you can imagine which we can't which we shouldn't categorize because we don't need to it's just mm-hmm. art um and you can see that you're flourishing like it's mm-hmm. so obvious and i feel like instagram can be used in that way where it sort of it flips stereotypes on itself in a yeah. sense one thing i would say about your presentation on instagram is first of all you look amazing mm-hmm. second of all i would say you can you come across as and seem and look so confident mm-hmm. and there can sometimes almost be like an intimidating confidence mm-hmm. in the way that you present on instagram and meeting you in person i feel like there is isn't an intimidation factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think going back one comment, I guess I just wanted to finish on uh, particularly being like trans and non-binary, there is a lack of positive role models and there's a lack of positive representation and particularly in media and films, you know, trans people have worked their way into these things but they're always such tragic stories and they're always quite sad, like there's always so much pain and suffering which is sadly a large part of the trans experience, but it focuses on it to such a degree that actually it's quite unusual to just come across a trans non-binary person flourishing and leading a positive life without always rattling this like victims sadness and destruction and pain and suffering which seems to be the case in so many stories that I've seen or read and definitely in film and TV I think that's started to change in the last couple of years but I think it's really important that people see that Mm. of all genders whoever they are whether they're cisgender or not it's important that people can see this and be like oh it's not scary or it's not a tragedy so I think that's really important and it's like the media isn't it who they did it as well with the um, the use of LSD and during the Vietnam War and the media really were so powerful in like squashing it and being like this is dangerous this is destructive look at all these terrible things it's done look at these miserable people when the reality of it was like a really beautiful thing mm-hmm. and I think when people get scared they make it dark they turn what they're scared of into something dark so that mm-hmm. they're like look this is not something joyful you should head towards this is something dark but it's like we've tied this aesthetic to goth being about misery mm-hmm. when it's not about that at all and and you're showing us that you're showcasing that yeah I think my attraction to goth started it started at school because it was the only visible
visible thing that kind of represented otherness. Like the reason I was drawn to people wearing black, which you kind of see in, in TV and film and stuff, that was the only kind of concept of otherness that I saw growing up. And I think that's why it kind of like appealed to me. But then specifically with the darkness, I think it was a way to turn around the darkness in my life and the trauma in my life and the negative experiences I received as a teenager and come to try and enjoy and revel in that kind of darkness and flip it on its head and just make it into a beautiful thing. And that, that's the thing with a lot of darkness is, you know, you can't have the light without darkness. It's just a fact that permeates through life and is almost like a gratitude for the hardships, a gratitude for the suffering. And that's kind of like what's made me the person I am. And I think goth shines a light, which is <laughs> on the darkness and really makes it into like a spectacle. And I think that's what drew me to that because it's, it's not about misery and pain and suffering at all. It's about the beauty of the whole experience of life. Powerful stuff. <laughs> no, I, was no I love it. I love it. It's brilliant. And mm. it's the thing is, this isn't something that you do for fun. This is you. Mm -hmm. You know, you clearly live and breathe this. It's who you are. I feel like if you didn't fully believe in it and have this passion for it, then I would question why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's good to see that there's like this total belief in it. It's a belief system ultimately. And like, you know, you've talked a bit about Wraith and I've talked about the beauty of the networking and the community, but there's nothing that can be dark about about that and mm -hmm. I just feel like bringing people together and like celebrating lots of situations that people have been in who've been ostracized I know you said not everyone in the group is queer but they can all relate to a sense of discrimination mm -hmm. and exclusion and what you're creating is an inclusive welcoming space I'm going to actually read a quote that you put in your introduction to your wraith book, you said, to be a proponent of inclusivity and acceptance by creating our own environment and welcoming newcomers. That was mm -hmm. something you said in the manifesto. And in the introduction, you said, with grandiose ambitions to change the face of music and clubbing from prioritizing women, trans and non-binary DJs and artists through to the platforming of disabled and people of color in subcultural environments that have always been the realm of white, able-bodied people to the art itself that perverts ideals of beauty, interrogates ethics explores new technologies and pushes towards post-human ways of existence. I love that. Like, yeah. again, that is your passion. That's, mm -hmm. That is the ethos of what you're trying to do, which is a wholly good and warm and welcoming thing. I think there are several other clubs, you know, it's almost like the hot thing right now, which is, you know, having like women DJs and being like more racially diverse, which is an incredible thing. But I think the thing about Rafe, which is unique, is it has all those things at its core, but then it also has a hard lying aesthetic purpose that unites us all together. And actually all these points on inclusivity and community, of course, I need to state them. But for me, it's almost it's just the standard. Yeah, yeah like I shouldn't need to say this that we need to champion everyone all together but unfortunately that's where we live and I do need to make those points but ultimately we are geared towards a shared enjoyment in this aesthetic experience of somewhere between darkness and transhuman values and queerness what else did I need to say I think I hinged on one part of the question but that was the second part the second part was saying how because there is such a confidence about you mm. and you're so self-assured mm -hmm. and I wonder if the, the public Parmaham at Wraith or on Instagram if you're different in private I guess no one is who they present online all, all the time. I mean that that comment is something I've heard a lot and I think that often speaks more for the person saying it than it does for me. There's an awful lot of people that might be intimidated by the self-assuredness but also the harshness and 
the confidence of the aesthetic and the look. And I wouldn't say I'm not trying to put across a particular attitude online in the sense of like, I am a hard ass bitch. Like, that's not what I'm trying to be. It just, I guess it just looks like that. I just want to look good online or post nice pictures. And it just so happens like... You like the ones when you look like a badass yeah, bitch. Yeah, they just, they just <laughs> seem harsh, but I never attempt to come across that in person, nor do I want to. I always have the same personality, and the way I talk to people in all situations, whether it's social or family, or actually I'm like this at work, like in my career, I have the same degree of warmth, and I ne- I, yeah, I, ne- I never want to be putting a, a face across that isn't authentic or real. I, I've definitely had it in various places where a lot of people are into intimidated by what they think I could be and often it's quelled once they've met me or they've spoken and they see how it really is but it was never it was never my intention to like be that or put that across no I don't mean it to sound like you don't look like someone who's very nice it's not so much that (laughs) and I think it's not like in a sense what I mean is like everyone your online persona is slightly different from your Mm -hmm. in-person persona which I've discovered today Mm -hmm. but for me it was not the goth aesthetic or the goth vibe I think it's probably just how you present and take photos and videos online. I guess it's just our alter ego, isn't it? It's always like that online. But no, it's not fear factor. Although I can see how probably so there are some people. I, I think who a have lot of that. people are. No, they are. <laughs> I've experienced that. Really? Yeah. Well, you said how like people of the older generation come up to you in the street and tell you how amazing they think you are. How do you find that? Do you feel like it's kind of patronizing or? No, I think I'm generally quite positive with pretty much any interaction like that. Like it can be a bit exhausting from time to time, but I'm. I almost feel like it's important to remain nice and kind because you don't want to bleed into this stereotype of, oh, that's uh, a cold, hard bitch. <laughs> like, I, I want to be welcoming and friendly and put across, just want to be positive. And that it, obviously it represents me, but also I feel like I represent other people like me. And I don't want to give people a reason to hate on me or my kind. <laughs> I feel like you're very fluent in terms of you've got this amazing vocabulary when mm-hmm. you're speaking and you can find the words that you need really mm-hmm. easily. It's almost like sometimes yeah. it seems yeah. like quite poetic and like organic. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing and being at school. You said that you've experienced some difficult times. And I was mm-hmm. wondering if that was because you felt like you didn't fit in or your kind of expression, your gender expression or your sexuality. How was school for you? I absolutely detested school. <laughs> really terrible. I I guess the point of school is to give everyone the same start in life to a degree unless you're at a private school, but to impart and give you a very broad education. But I found the whole thing so irrelevant. I took zero interest in it and was pretty much a loner at school. I just don't know why I was there. And even to this day, I'm like, I really feel like someone should have just popped me out of there and been like, okay, you need to set your own course in life. Um, Which you kind of did as well. Yeah. And like looking back, I'm like, wow, that was such a waste of time. I can see why for many others it would be useful but it it just imparted information and crap which I didn't want to know I still wish I didn't know and (laughs) it was not useful and then growing up at that time as well there was still a lot of homophobia about there was a lot of transphobia about and there was very little to no knowledge of agender non-binary whatever this third option could be so it was definitely a time in my life of just confusion and not belonging and not really been 
able to understand what my position was. And did it, you get picked on? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, I got I got bullied a little bit, which was not nice. But the bully mysteriously died a few months later. So witchcraft. Did they actually die? Yeah. Oh my god. Got pneumonia at fifteen and died. So don't cross me. <laughs> oh my god. Um. <laughs> yeah, but he made like a lot of people's lives hell, and it was physical and aggressive. And anyway, that was awful. But I guess without, like I said, there was no role models to mm. gender or sexuality for me. And then there was also a general feeling of shame attached to it. There was definitely name calling and shame coming from all angles, whether that's friends, family, the media. It was always there. And as a child, you pick up on it. And I think one of the things that gave me so much strength was that moment at being you know, age 12 or 13. And you're always programmed to listen to teachers and parents. And at 13, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to listen to these people. They're transphobic. They're homophobic. They're idiots. I'm 13 and I know what's right. And I'm going to live my life accordingly. And I think all my strength comes from that moment where I had to be like confident in my beliefs and what I thought was right and okay to live by. And yeah, it was, it was difficult for a few years, but I overcame it and came out the other end fine. So, mm, And you went to university as well? Yeah. So Just... I studied philosophy and that was, it was purely for the sake of academia. I literally loved the subject. I loved thinking and I liked writing. I like writing essays, which many people don't. But you can tell that when you said I studied philosophy, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. and It makes sense. And I hope that university felt like a safer space for you. Yeah, it was a good point to experiment. And that was where I discovered aesthetics and the philosophy of art. Because art for me was always something that was somewhat inaccessible. Coming from a very like working class background, we couldn't afford music lessons. I was always put off the idea that the arts is a field where you can succeed. And actually now I'm working in the arts, I can see for working class people, it's not a field you can succeed in. There was some awful study, which I think came out like a few months ago, which is something like 70% of the people working in the arts are from like middle class or higher positions. Like there's no working class people there. It's a really elitist It's so industry. elitist and it's... And nepotism is right. Oh yeah, nepo babies are everywhere. It is a difficult thing. So I can see why maybe I was put off that when I was younger. But just to interject there, you do now work in the Serpentine mm -hmm. in very established and well-respected gallery. So mm -hmm. I feel like you've broken that boundary in the sense mm -hmm. of that statistic. Do you find that you're up against it at the Serpentine in terms of elitism? No, I think that in itself quite a brilliant gallery anyhow and it's probably outside of the rest of the art world. I guess a lot of that elitism is more in commercial galleries where conservatism and money, big money is like, I, I guess that's the main source of why nepotism is favoured and it's difficult to get into unless you live and breathe that rich lifestyle, I guess. Mm. And then you said at university, it was a place where you were experimenting. Do you mean that artistically or in terms of your dress or in terms of your philosophical thinking? It was experimenting with philosophy and actually learning about art because like I said, it was completely off limits. The first taste of what contemporary art is. So I was studying like Arthur Danto and I think he was talking quite a lot about like Warhol and I think that was my entry point into understanding the language around contemporary art because it is a language because it is quite abstract and it's not for or it doesn't seem like it's for the common person on the street like why is there a urinal in this gallery I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to answer that but once you try and grapple with the history of art and see where we've got to suddenly it all makes perfect sense and it's all kind of beautiful and that to me was when I started to 
consider my own work and experiment with how I could put myself forward as an artist. Whereas before, I was very much like, no, you have to be trained, really accomplished in order to put like work out. But it wasn't until I moved to London and started working in London. What really gave me encouragement was seeing all the bad art that was out there. And I was like, <laughs> holy shit, some people have made entire careers out of this. Like, I'll be damned if I don't try because I can do so much better than this. So did you always have an artistic urge? Was there something like unsatisfied in you artistically? It was always in me, but it was never encouraged by like school and peers. I don't know. I was just very let down by the whole system of it. Like I started to draw when I was a baby. And it's funny because I gripped my pen in a really unique way, which is basically really primal as a baby would grip a pen. And you still do that And now. I still do it. And I remember the whole of school, they were driving me fucking crazy trying to get me to hold a pen right. And I was just like, I am holding it right because I can make marks on a paper and you can read it. And they would not let it go. And I kept having these stupid pencils that were triangle shaped and my grip would just go over it. And there was nothing they could do about it. Pencils that were triangle shaped? Yeah. So you have to grip it. Maybe for a lot of people, they were forced to hold it in that way. My grip just goes right over it. And I think that's a good way to kind of explain how I was always kind of like pushed away from following my own path or, or experimenting or doing my own thing. There was always, no, you can't do it that way. It needs to be this set way. And you always wanted to rebel against that. Yeah, I think that was the same with arts. I might have had an interest, but it was never, I never had a cheerleader behind me, which is really sad. Like I hear a lot about like other kids and other like artists, how supportive their whole family is and the people around them. I didn't have that. I had people actively discouraging me. Were your I, parents actively discouraging you? Yeah, and I don't blame them. It's because they're like incredibly working class and they could not see how someone from our demographic could make it big in the arts which is true because we don't. And of course I am changing that but for the large part you know they were worried and they were in fear and they didn't want to encourage that part of me. But what did they encourage you to do instead would you have said? I mean I was meant to take over my dad's family business which is plumbing which... I can see you as a plumber. <laughs> yeah no you can't. <laughs> like maybe, maybe I've got like good <laughs> sink side appeal and you can give me a cup of tea and it will be so Sink side appeal. Yeah. I'm thinking like, more of the like pipes. Yeah. I can imagine you doing something with those pipes, fashion y, nullo pipes. Yeah. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to start learning to weld soon. Maybe I could have actually learned oh, from my go. dad. But, so um, they were keen for you to go into plumbing or take over the plumbing business. Yeah. But it was just like not my vocation at all. That's their dream and what they wanted. And of course, yeah. there is a lot of security and reliability with that kind of thing. It's another thing that goes into to why the arts has mostly middle class people in there is middle class people can and will get extra classes, extra curriculum activities for their kids and encourage them to go in all these different directions. And they've got a cushion. Yeah. So if it doesn't work out, exactly. they can probably take some time out and find a different job. And so you said you were drawing from a really young age. I do just want to say as well to the listeners that we can hear your creaking outfit, which I'm really enjoying. Yeah, I but, think it adds it adds to it. Like, you yeah, can, it's you audible. can tell it's me present. Yeah, it's it's an audible outfit. Yeah. It's like a PVC all-in-one black. Yeah, it's a PVC jumpsuit. Jumpsuit, with, uh, like. 
shards, plastic chaps over it. You've put the which... you've put the chaps on. I no, assume they didn't come with the catsuit. Yeah. So you've put the harness on, and you also have these kind of plastic tubes, which almost look sort of industrial. Yeah, they're, they're literally from Leyland, like the <laughs> hardware store. And they, they're over chains. They're they're basically like suspenders. Like they keep. The chaps oh, I see. Up. They keep the chaps up. Yeah. It's a proper DIY. It looks like editorial DIY. Mm-hmm. I can yeah, see it. I in wish. A, in an <laughs> but that's what the occasional creaking is. I'll try and not move. No, no, no. <laughs> Feel free. I think it adds to the uh, to the awareness that it's Palmerham. When was it post or during university that you started playing with sort of sculptural elements and different materials? And what was it that you started to get interested in first? My first entry point was actually through performance. To me, it seems almost like the most accessible art form because you're using your body, which we all have. Other art forms require materials, they require knowledge, space. Whereas performance, I feel like was the most accessible and also probably the most visceral and close to the human experience. So for a couple of years, I think I I was just performing, but I felt the pull to create something almost more permanent because however much I love performance, it's a thing that happens and then it's gone. And though that's magical and I still do it, you don't have that much to show at the end. And maybe there's even like a slight pull to capitalism to be like, I need a product to sell. I mean, all all artists need to somehow engage a little bit with the art world and sell. Everyone's got to make money. Yeah. So I guess maybe there was like a slight element of shit. I need to do objects as well. But I think for the large part, it was as I was performing, I felt like I was tapping into this aesthetic world that I had in my head. And now with any art medium, whether it's performance, music, fashion, installation, philosophy, storytelling, it all taps into this single world that can be applied in all these directions. So performance, though, was the starting point. I feel like I can be put in any one direction and still tap into that same aesthetic and pull it out and spread it. What kind of performances were you in at the beginning? The first performance, I think, it was a collaboration with Dart and the Eighth. I think it was for the memorial of Ros Williams of Christian Death, who died maybe 20 years ago. And we basically reimagined and restaged a performance that Ros did with the amazing performance artist Ron Athey. And what survived of that performance was six images that's all there was and we looked at these images and we kind of like imagined how it could have gone we recreated it with the knowledge that that was done in the early 80s but kind of given it a contemporary twist i guess i started performing in club nights it's a really easy area to begin experimenting on and when you experiment in your own context in your own community there's less pressure and more rewards i guess it's just easier to experiment in your own environment and i guess it's in a space that you've decided for it to be in and and you already know you've got your target audience Mm. which probably is helpful when you're testing things out there's almost something quite stale about a gallery space and the way they frame the work it kind of takes it out of context and it's just in you know a white environment which i do like and find beautiful but in a way i feel like it loses its role especially with performance i feel like sometimes performance is meant to be a bit messy or like allowed to get messy yeah and a gallery feels quite sterile 
style sometimes mm-hmm. and the messiness doesn't sort of fit. It fits more in a grimy club. Yeah. And when did you start doing your sculpture pieces, which at the moment there's some on show at Anti-Clone Gallery. Yes, right. And you're using silicone as a sort of fleshy material. So the starting point was the Nullo project that I did. That was the first thing where I used silicone. And Nullo was an experimentation in sex and gender. So of course, a lot of the pieces were organic and, you know, dildos made out of silicone. Like, there's an easy flow while silicone entered the stream. And then after Nullo, I guess I kind of wanted to make objects in a similar vein. I was planning to create a whole room environment, as in like a table, a chair, a lamp, a sofa. But I got so hung up on these little lamps. I probably made 30 of them over the course of six months or something. I just became a bit addicted to making them. They all take organic forms, but mix them up with like man-made forms, which I guess it was something that I was already exploring with Nalo. So these objects were transhuman objects. And I guess they were experimentations as well. They were really kind of like Frankenstein objects that were pushing together these different forms, but trying to create something a little bit uncomfortable, but also very beautiful. What do you think makes them feel uncomfortable? I think it's the the sense of familiarity with the skin color and certain forms that you can see like mouths and tongues and bits of bone. You know, there's parts of a human in that, but it's very parts of, and it's really incomplete and it's mashed together. I imagine some people, I mean, some people, my mum, <laughs> finds it a little bit grotesque and creepy. So but isn't that kind of the point, I guess? I didn't set out to make something creepy. I was just trying to like make something that was representative of me, which is probably creepy, um, <laughs> but also something that was kind of just beautiful and just mashed together man and machine. And you talked about the fact that with performance art, you felt like it was sometimes lacking something that had longevity and how you wanted to create things that would last and have mm-hmm. a history. There's this sort of new wave of goth and this counterculture that you're a part of in Wraith and you're kind of leading in a sense. Do you see what you're doing and the art that you're making in this community you're building? Do you feel like it'll be in the history books? And when you're doing this, do you feel like you're making a mark on history? I guess it's not really for me to say and I wouldn't want to get an ego over it. <laughs> no, but even, but, I know what you mean, I but can... I think you're also being like humble or polite. Yeah, I, I do, like I am quite humble and modest, so I don't really like talking about things like that. But there earlier is... you mentioned with Nello, I know you were kind of joking, but I want it to be in a museum one day, I'm not going to say yeah. it. There is a sense of like what you're doing that it has got a lot of attention and there's a huge momentum building around mm-hmm. it. And there is a sense that things are shifting and you're kind of a face of it. Mm-hmm. I guess the way I approach my practice and with Rafe, I'm very into documentation. And that to me is almost future proof in the project. One is like it is an archive of everything that's happening. So if in the future it is relevant, it's not going to be like some of the club nights I've read about in the 80s and 90s when no one has any idea and there's nothing <laughs> about it. Just a few grainy photos. Yeah, and it's just like I don't want to be in that position. We did something amazing and I want people to see it and have proof and this archive is a living archive where it's also produced in order to share with the world what we're also doing. And I do post these images all the time across all social channels, which contradicts quite a lot of other clubs which don't allow photos that don't want people to see what's going on. No, I want to share far and wide what we're doing because I think what we're doing is valuable and it's a conversation. People need to see this around the world, particularly my own tribe, who I guess I care about a bit more. Work that we platform and the creatives that are succeeding and flourishing. I want people 
people around the world to talk about that and see it and try and impart some of that in their own lives. But that's the conversation. That's what I mean by me pointing it out. There is a conversation. I've literally said the first word. I've put this idea out there and this community and, and now it's for other people to respond in their own way. Going back to kind of the 80s and the fact that we haven't got enough documentation from those particular club nights. And now that we can document things online so easily and, and take photos so easily on our phones, but you're also deliberately documenting and archiving mm -hmm. and being quite methodical about it, which I think I think it's really clever. I also think that maybe this documentation archive is part of the work itself because when you see a performance it happens in the night, it's there and it's kind of get forgotten about. But once it's stored, it has a second run and usually that's quite different to the experience of the work in itself. So it's almost like a second show in. And definitely with the way a design which incorporated language and ideas and concepts and theories, that was another way to explore the things that happened in the club night that you don't often get to say in the club because frankly we're having fun. We don't want to theorize stuff all the time. <laughs> we want to get messy. So, <laughs> But I have a feeling maybe in the future people will look back and think it is relevant. And my basis for that, I've seen a lot of other movements out there that are terrible and boring <laughs> that have gone down in the history books. And if I compare this moment to that, I way prefer this moment that's happening now. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's probably a lot of bias there. And I guess you're a part of this. Yeah, one. There are, that is the bias. That, but time is the only thing that can really tell. But I'm pretty sure it will have some kind of impact. I have no idea what parts about it are the things that are going to be remembered for. The public and the wider academic spectrum always go on certain things that maybe weren't as important or as core at the time. But they always have their own way of making something relevant or important. And I guess yeah. that changes with time as well. And I <laughs> guess having documentation of everything mm -hmm. means that whoever is analysing your artwork or looking back at that moment in history, it's not like actually it can kind of be misunderstood mm -hmm. in a weird way. They're not going to be like, okay, we've got this one video of this one night and then they're going to decide what the night was like from that one video. Mm -hmm. There's a proliferation of images, videos, all sorts of kind of social media mm -hmm. and artwork. So there's a whole load of stuff that people can use. But how, in terms of your artwork, what's the direction you're going in now and how do you see it developing in the future? My work is this interesting mix, I guess, of being very futuristic and sci-fi and transhuman but at the same time there's something primal and animalistic and ancient like, that's a theme that keeps reoccurring so it's almost getting pulled in two separate directions but then each work combines them both to me it's exploring what's next for humans and for individuals obviously we look to science fiction and see like how our bodies and changing and how we're all addicted to beauty and anti-aging and... but then I also see global disaster with both late stage capitalism, the environmental disaster that's looming. So I can also see humans changing into an earlier form. If like the world is completely destroyed and just a few of us live, I can see us being taken back to this really animalistic way of life, which is living in small tribes and communities that live off the land and have kind of a closer relationship with the flora and fauna. And I think that direction is also what could be transhuman. It's almost going back in time rather than forward. So I try Becoming and more organic 
organic and natural. Yeah. In a way, that is the future, isn't it? It doesn't have to be like we're going backwards or quote unquote returning to nature. It can be like a new way of reconnecting with nature, mm -hmm. maybe with technology or with advanced scientific discoveries that allow us a sort of different reconnection with nature, which is a very post-human approach, Yeah. <laughs> funnily enough. Yeah. But yeah, have you got any shows coming up that you would like to talk to us about? Or where can people go and see your work? Are there any more Nullo shows coming up, which I know that people would be really excited to see? Yeah, you actually saw a little taster because you popped along to the Newington Green exhibition. There was like a small performance for an hour and a half during the opening, which was kind of like a, a ritual I totally lost my mind in, which was unexpected. <laughs> it was amazing to watch. It felt like some kind of sacrificial witch concoction, round the cauldron, mystical. <laughs> there were three of you sat mm -hmm. in amongst dry leaves in mm -hmm. a kind of hut that had yeah. those silicone skin mm -hmm. bone artworks around mm -hmm. it. And you were sort of rocking and swaying to the music and mm -hmm. you had fake blood that you were sort of smearing mm -hmm. on each other. It wasn't fake. It wasn't fake. Yeah, I bled that out of me for four days. No. <laughs> Hang on, I can't work out if you're joking or not. Like, I mean, yeah, so... Hang on, are you joking? No, like it was... I got, got it pumped out. How did you pump that blood out? With a syringe. Oh, my God. So was that was your real blood. Yeah. I did think it looked really realistic. <laughs> That wasn't even like a point I wanted to make. That was just like a sidebar. Just standard. Yeah, just She's like, why not? Like, why, just, why not just make it real? I'm vegan, so I'm not going to use pig's blood or whatever. I just thought it was from like the costume shop down the road. That piece, it started off with this shack that I wanted to create. I'm not sure why. It was just always in my mind. I wanted to create a little structure with the silicon. And then true to my style, I just overdid it. I was like, okay. <laughs> Okay, well, in order for it to be fully realized, it needs to have a relation to someone or people. So the three people that performed were me and two of my friends, who are both trans women and witches in their own way. Going back to my interest in paganism and mythology, it was about reasserting trans women and powerful women as healers and nurturers, which of course they always were until the empire came along and said they're witches and demonized them as being evil and mad. Magical. There's nothing evil about medicine, but at that time they thought it was. And the action was the cycle of abuse and suffering. I would dip my hand in this vat of blood and I would delicately or aggressively wipe it on the person to my right. And then she, in turn, would follow that cycle of abuse and put blood from the vat on the person to her right. And the cycle continues. And it was all about the cycle of suffering, that when you're hurt, you then hurt someone else. But it always comes back to you. So obviously the three of us as trans and non-binary identities have experienced so much trauma. So it was like a visual representation of the shit that we've gone through. So there's lots of different it's levels. Very powerful. And you're going to be doing a bit more of that. Yeah. So the next thing I have planned is I'm looking to do a Nullo show. So this performance, there was a few garments that are from that show, which I decided to show early. But right. I probably won't post about them too much because they're meant in the show, but I kind of couldn't resist. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap up. There. Thank you so much of for course. coming on to Bodies in the Post. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to me. It's been fascinating and I feel like you're such a key player in amongst this particular subculture that you're in and this movement towards post-human expression. So it's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bodies in the Post with Palmer Ham. If you enjoyed listening, please follow the show for more episodes. 